hopefully uh, we'll be able to finish uh, without too much time. But I just want to share a quick word with you uh, this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 2. We'll read it really quickly, and then we'll jump in. And like I said, if you're kind of like, oh man, I've been sitting and listening to a lot of things, you can kind of get up and kind of shake it out. That's totally fine. Um, I don't mind. Uh, If you're feeling a little tired and sleepy, you can get up and walk around in the back. But Psalm 2, we'll read it really quickly, and I think there's something that God is wanting to say to us through uh, this scripture and also through what we heard from your fellow peers. So Psalm 2, we're going to read the whole thing. Uh, It's not too long, only eight verses, and then we will jump right in. Oh, and junior high students, and for those of you who are new, every time you see the capital L-O-R-D in Hebrew, it's Yahweh, and I think God is really wanting us to use his real name and not just Lord, so you hear me say Yahweh instead of Lord, so if you're confused about that, that's what's going on. And then also, you'll hear me read the word Selah, um, and if you've been with us for a little bit, uh, we kind of learned what that means, so we'll kind of read it that way, okay? Oh, Yahweh, how my adversaries have... Oh, sorry, wrong one. Wrong one. Psalm 2, not 3. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do do homage to the son and that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this summer, as you heard last week, if you were here, we have the privilege of journeying through the Psalms, and I'm super excited. And uh, Pastor Goose gave you a bit um, of an intro on that, and we and he talked about Psalm 1, uh, and I actually listened to the sermon. I, I was really blessed. Um, but here's why I'm super excited. Because the Psalms, more than anything, they teach us how to pray. And notice, I didn't say they teach us what to pray, but how to pray. And I think there's a big difference. Because truth is, I think many of us struggle with prayer because I think most of us think I'm not good at it, right? It's why if if we're ever in a crowd or if we're at a retreat or on missions and I go, hey, does somebody want to pray for us? Crickets, silence. And everyone kind of looks around. And then basically at the end, whoever the biggest extrovert and big mouth of the group is, finally their thing goes, okay, this is too much silence, I can't handle it, and they'll go, fine, I'll pray, and then they'll offer up something, right? And perhaps we think that there's a proper way to pray, there's a way to arrange the words, there's to make like eloquent and nice sounding phrases that makes prayers better. But I think what we're learning and what we're going to learn this summer is that prayer isn't this, and that the Psalms are not like this at all. Hear what Eugene Peterson, who's a famous pastor, he actually wrote the message version of the Bible. Here's what he says about prayer. He says, prayer is language used in personal relation to God. It gives utterance. It speaks of what we sense or what we, or what we want or how we respond to before God. He says, God speaks to us and our answers are our prayers. And the answers that we give are not always articulate. It may be silence. It may be sighs. It may be groaning. These our responses. The answers are also not always positive. It may be anger, skepticism, or curses even. They are also responses. But always God is involved in prayer, whether in darkness or light, whether in faith or despair. This, he says, is hard to get used to because our habit is to talk about God, but not to God. 
We love discussing God, but the Psalms resist these temptations and these discussions. They are not provided, the Psalms are not provided to teach us about God, but to train us in responding to Him. So he says, we don't learn the Psalms until we are actually praying them. And in the quote, I think two things jump out at me very immediately. He says, first, he says, prayer isn't articulate. It's not soft, kind, flowery, eloquent, and composed, right? They can be jumbled. They can be broken. They can be angry. They can be hurt. Because if you're responding genuinely to the things that happen, that's what it is. When I saw that child, for a while I couldn't speak. I just wanted to go over into the corner and cry. My heart was so angry. It was, so, it was literally pissed off that some child had to live that way. And so my prayers weren't nice. They weren't, dear God, this and this. It was just, God, why? Right? Prayers aren't have to be this. Whatever's happening in the world, whatever God is up to, our prayers are our answers, and the Psalms teach us that. And the reason this is is because if we're responding with who we are and genuinely as we are, it has to include darkness. It has to include light. It has to include faith. It has to include despair. Life is not always pretty. And so you can't just wait for the pretty moments to offer up prayers. Life isn't always kind and gentle and nice and eloquent. Life is messy. It's dirty. And I think all of you know it from time to time. And if we can't pray in those times because we feel like we don't have the right words, then what's the point? And the Psalms, I think, teaches us that that's the case. And the second thing that jumped out about Eugene Peterson's quote is that he says, God is always involved. Actually, prayer is God initiating the conversation, and our job and our task is only to respond. It's to answer. So prayers is always personal. They always mean something deep to our core. But I think oftentimes our prayers, if we're being honest, are just like a list of things that we want, things that we maybe hope for, that we don't really believe in. Things that we just maybe hope might happen, just maybe that God might be listening. But as you heard from the testimonies, and you'll continue to hear from the testimonies on and on for the next couple weeks, one thing that we found out this week in Haiti was just how critical and crucial prayer is to everything that we do. Jay shared, he prayed, God, break my heart for what breaks yours, and God indeed did, and he saw everything differently. He saw a family who couldn't afford to send their kids to school, and that just broke him. He saw a voodoo priest who was blind but had faith, and that broke him. We realize that if we aren't responding to what God is doing and praying in that, then all we ended up being all week was timid and shy and confused and not really knowing what God was up to. But you'll hear from them, not from me, you'll hear from them that as they began to pray and really asking God and just responding to what he was doing in their lives and what they were seeing, they saw God alive and active They heard the brokenness of the country. They heard the pains of the people, but they also heard the joy and the cries of the people saying, God, you are everything to me. And so this summer, I hope, as we journey through the Psalms uh, with Pastor Goose and I preaching through this, that we are going to find ourselves praying the Psalms. But more than praying them, that we would learn to respond to God as he's moving. And so the reason why Pastor Goose preached Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, uh, and that I'm preaching Psalm 2 today, because they serve as the introduction to the Psalms. So the rest of the Psalms from 3 to whatever, I think 150-something, right? Uh, Pastor Goose went over. They're the three Ps. They're, I call them poetic prayers and praises, right? But the first two introduce and kind of set the stage for all the rest. But as I was studying the two, one thing immediately just kind of popped out at me. 
Okay? There's a word that is really critical to both psalms. They're translated in English really differently, but in Hebrew, they're the exact same word. In Psalm 1, it's the word meditate, and he says, in his law, he meditates day and night. And in Psalm 2, the word is to plot or to devise or to scheme. He says, the peoples devise a vain thing. Scheme a vain thing. The word in Hebrew is literally an onomatopoeia. Who knows what an onomatopoeia is? Mason. Like, boom, crash, bam. If you're from the 80s and 90s like I am, that's what the Batman shows look like back in the day. But anyways, it's an onomatopoeia, but it's a sound word, and what it literally means is like a growling, a muttering, a murmuring. The best way I can describe this is when I have a big plate of sangyeopsal, pork belly, on the plate, and I get it with lettuce, and I put the belly on there with the, with the sesame seed and the samjang and the pamuchim, sorry if you're not Korean, and all this stuff, and I wrap it up, and then I put it in my mouth, and then the taste, and it's like, mmm. You know that sound? That groans from your soul. That's what we do with God's word when we meditate. We chew on it. We're like, mmm. Like, so good you can't even talk, but you're just like, mmm. But the people, the kings of the earth, they're using that to plot, right? So in both Psalms, the subject of the thing that's being meditated on or plotted against or murmured, chewed, you know, meditated upon is God, God, God's people, and God's word. So Psalm 1, it teaches us to approach God, his people, and his word with delight. Because if you do it this way, if you meditate on it that way, then you're like, a, you're like a tree, right, whose roots are planted firmly in the water, and the, the water, it gives life to you, and it kind of overflows. But Psalm 2 is the very opposite. Psalm 2 shows that there are people in the world who are plotting and scheming to get rid of God's word, God's people, and himself. Essentially, Psalm 2 teaches us that there will always be people in the world, in our lives, who are going to be devising schemes plotting in order to get rid of God completely from their lives. They basically want no God interference whatsoever. And here's the really big difficulty about that. The people who do so, it says in Psalm 2, are the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth. The people who plot against God are really impressive. They're influential. They have power. They have fame. They have status. And what they're trying to teach you is that God is unnecessary, that God doesn't exist, that church is fake, that it's like a social club and nothing more, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if we're being really honest, if you look around the world and the things that we listen to and we watch, we listen and we believe it. We're intimidated that God isn't really this way. And we believe it a little and a lot. We think things like, we, we think this in our mind, we go like, man, like, if those people who are so famous, who have so much money, who have so much influence, are actively against God and, his, and God's word, then what difference do we make? Or more specifically, they, we think, what difference does prayer make? How is prayer going to do anything against the people who tell us that God is nothing, that church is nothing, that it's fake? How does it stack up? to the words of the people who have so much influence. And I think our team, this week in Haiti, we felt this from time to time. Because, you know, we got to do things. We got to paint houses, which is really awesome. We got to plant trees, which provides fruit, uh, food and, and a source of income for the families. But after those days, the thing that a lot of our teammates said, they were like, man, I love today because we got to do something. Right? We got to provide, and I got to see tangibly like, the things that we did. 
We felt good because we actually got to help, we said. And what's at the heart of this is that we think that doing something is more important or valuable than praying. Because we can't see what prayer does, but I can see a house that's painted. I can see a, a tree that I've planted in the ground. But again, Eugene Peterson, he teaches, he says, we must fight this. So this is what he says. He's an intimidation, right? Intimidation is as fatal to prayer as distraction. If we are intimidated, we will forfeit the entire world of culture and politics and business and science to those who set themselves against the Lord. Basically, what he's saying is that if we believe that prayer doesn't do anything, then we'll give up because everyone else seems better. And we'll go after doing all these other things and we'll forget to pray because we think it's weak. Now, I, think, I don't think anybody in the church would say prayer isn't important. Like, no one would say that, right? Because then you'd just be like, uh, are you really a Christian? But I think most of us believe that, yeah, prayer is good, but we should focus on the real needs of people and provide for that, right? But here's the major issue that Psalm 2 is getting at. That as we think this about prayer, the major issue in our hearts is simply that we do not think that God is big enough. That's the issue. In Haiti, we don't think he's big enough, and therefore his world is big enough, therefore his rule is great enough to deal with the rulers and the kings and the powerful people who are scheming and plotting to, an, to put an end to God. We don't think that prayer is what Haiti needs. We think they need money, or we think they need trees, we think they need shelter, or whatever the case might be. Because if we indeed believed, and ask yourself, if I really believed and felt and trusted that God is indeed larger, bigger, and more powerful than any ruler, any king, any politician, any famous musician, any athlete, anyone who has money, if we really believe that deep in our hearts, wouldn't we always begin everything we do with prayer and end it with prayer? See, I'm not saying you don't go out and help. You do. But don't we always begin it with prayer and we end it with prayer because we realize that's the thing? See, if we believe that God was much bigger and larger than everything, we would say, yes, doing things and providing needs is super awesome, but nothing is more important than prayer. That is the thing we need to do. It's kind of like this. My kids think that I'm the coolest person in the world. They also, unfortunately, think in their skewed little minds that I'm the biggest person in the world. Now, it's, it's that way because their mother is five feet tall and their father is six foot two. They, they just kind of see the disparity and they go, whoa, daddy's got to be the most biggest person in the world. But I'm not the biggest person in the world. But kids who think that their dad is the greatest and the biggest, if they ever get into an argument or fight with somebody or that, you know, kind of, you know, things kind of get a tussle, you know what they say? Oh yeah? I'm going to call my daddy then you're going to be in big trouble. And the idea is that my daddy's bigger than yours. And if he really wanted to, he'd beat the you-know-what out of you. So stop messing with me. And they believe it with every fiber of their being. So they know they got that card in the back of their pocket. So if you really want to mess with it, yeah, maybe I'll deal with you. But if you really push me and if you really get me to that place, dude, I'm going to call my daddy and then you're going to be in big trouble. And they believe it to the core. But we don't believe that about our heavenly Father. So what we need is a tool, a thing that we can use to help us realize just how big God is. Because if we don't realize how big and powerful and loving and awesome our God is, then it'll never compete with everything else that we think is in opposition to him in the world. Because everything else will seem more powerful, more important, more influential 
And therefore, our prayer will always be stunted. It'll be weak, timid. And that murmuring, that groaning sound we're supposed to make, that mm, sound we're supposed to make with the joy of Psalm 1 will then become nothing more than a small whimper, just barely able to make some noise because of this towering fear and intimidation that surrounds us. So the tool we need is prayer. That's what Psalm teaches us. That at all moments, what we need is prayer. And specifically, I think Goose and I will, Pastor Goose and I will tell you, teach you, and we're all going to learn, is with prayer through the Psalms. Now at this point, the all-important question comes up, and most of you in your mind are probably thinking, but Pastor, sounds good, you spin a good story, but how can I really trust and believe that the prayers will actually do this, that will actually help me to see how big God is and actually rely on that? Well, one, we learned earlier, the Psalms and the prayers are responses to what God is already up to, that God is acting, that God is doing. But check this. What God is doing and what Psalm 2 is telling us that God is up to is straight up gangster. Because our God, you don't want to mess with. So check it out. He says, the people are uh, uh, devising schemes and plotting, right? The rulers of the earth, they're doing their thing, and they're trying to take their stand against God's anointed, and they're saying things like, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. They're basically, let's, let's ruin them, let's kill them. And then God's response in verse 4, did you read it? He who sits in the heaven laughs, and Yahweh scoffs at them. God's like, Really? <laughs> really? And then in verse 5, he says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. People put up their stands and say, You know what? We're going to try to take down God and we're going to take him down. And God says, Really? For real? Me? You going to come at me? And then he gets angry that they would have the audacity to come at him. They would have the, just the mere stupidity even to think that they're better. And then he says, In his anger, and in his fury, he's going to terrify them by doing what? By installing this king upon Zion, his holy mountain, he says in verse 6. And that's the answer. See, everyone else is going to be opposing God. Everyone else is going to want to tear him down. And what God says, I'm going to anoint my king on my hill, Zion. He's going to be my son, the begotten one, and he is going to rule. And if you're reading and if you're understanding what God is saying, I'm going to provide lots of little messiahs, but he's going to provide the king, Jesus, in the end. But again, you might be saying, Pastor, again, sounds really good, but let's be real. TBH, what good does that do for me? Like, I know Jesus Lord. I know he's Savior. I know he's the king, but let's be real. Like, that, that really ain't helping me against everything that says God is irrelevant or unimportant. Really, in reality, it's kind of useless day to day. Again, Eugene Peterson is helpful here, and he nails it. He says, the Messiah is God's invasion of the secular. His entry into the world where people go to school, go to work, go to war, go to Chicago. I don't know why he says Chicago. That's pretty random. But he enters, he says, and he enters in person. His word is not only what we meditate in scriptures, but it takes shape in history, and we see it in action in a person. The reason why Chris says that the word, the scripture, is the most valuable thing is because this thing tells us that the person who is talking about, the, who, the, who this is talking about, comes into those places. But here's the craziest thing about God, King, and Messiah entering into where we go to school, where we work, and all those things. Because what we expect God's Messiah to be isn't what we get. See, I think you and I would think if everyone's going up against God and trying to tear him down, 
right, then the thing that God would do is to install a person in a strong and imposing person, right? But no, we get a very normal, unremarkable commoner in Jesus. We would expect it a rich, influential ruler, but we get a poor carpenter's son from Galilee. We would expect it an intellectual, smart person who has all the brain power, and actually we get a fairly normal hillbilly from the country because Galilee is in the countryside. And the people back in his day, in our day, and through always are not happy. We object. We say things like, but I know this guy. He's from my neighborhood. I know his daddy. I know what he did. I played ball with him in second grade and all these things. And let me tell you, our neighborhood, it ain't nothing special. I know his mom. I know his dad. And let me tell you, again, they ain't nothing special. He's only a poor carpenter's son. He's not really going to do much. Like, what is he going to really do? And then we say, God, wouldn't it have better? Christians, wouldn't it be better if they went for the jugular? Go big or go home, we say build a big temple, put up some mighty statues, get a big fortress, a huge army, an imposing force, and go in and tell everybody who's opposing you that you can, you know what, and then just tear them down, shut them down, defeat them, and then make them follow you because you're bigger and stronger than they are. And the objection, if you're following, seems legit, doesn't it? It's the way we think. We think power wins, right? Let me get more money. Let me get more power. Let me get a better degree because then people will listen to me. Let me look fancier, put on some nicer clothes, and people will listen to me. But God's way is not our way. And in truth, what we find in Psalm 2 is that God does exactly what we need him to do. So again, let's listen to Eugene Peterson real quick. He's, by the way, I think he's like the best person on all the Psalms. He's just, he nails it. He says, this God's rule in Jesus is not sovereignty. That's like lordship, right? Not, it's not sovereignty imposed on history or on humans. It invades. It begins on the inside and not on the outside. Those who embrace this way will discover in the life of prayer that follow that the inside is bigger than the outside. Here's what he's really saying. He's saying, we've seen all the world's methods before, right? What they do is they, they, they command and conquer, right? They take over by sheer force. The bigger and the stronger almost always wins. And because I... And because I am bigger, you're going to listen to me. You're going to do as I say, right? The little nations and the little people are always on the short end. The poor get poor and the richer get richer. This is what we call imposing your will on someone, right? We use it in sports. It's basically making them so tired and so weak and so little that by the end, they'll defeat, they'll wave the white flag, and they'll say, okay, I can't do it anymore. And then you make them follow you. You make them serve you. You make them love you. You make them adore you because they have no other choice. But I think you and I would agree. This never lasts because we know it's never actually real. Because we know how can it be real, adoration, worship, love, when the one who is needing to love the other has no choice, right? This is what the Psalm's telling us. God doesn't impose, rather he enters or invades. He begins the work from the inside out and not the outside in. Because God knows that the only way we're going to see how big God is is when we learn to trust him, when we learn to love him, when we learn to adore him, when we learn to worship him because we want to, not because we feel like we have to. And when we do, and your peers in Haiti, they learn this, when we do 
want to love God, we begin to see that God is really big and he's really able. As your, as your friends in Haiti began to pray, they began to see what God was doing in Haiti. They began to hear God's voice. They began to see what God wanted them to do. They found that God was answering their prayer. They began to see God moving in them, leading them to share their stories. The most shyest people in the room were sharing about their life to random Haitians. Can you believe it? Korean people don't share their life. We're, we're built that way, unless you're me. Because I'm just a blabbermouth. But here they were sharing in front of people. You'll hear about it. People stepping out of their comfort zones. Why? Because I think they understood that God is bigger. He's able. And my little story that we think is insignificant, God can use. Because why? He is daddy. Because I'm going to call my daddy and then you're going to be in big trouble. And notice how the psalm finishes and we'll end here and we'll invite the praise team up. Then Yahweh says to the anointed king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. God promises to his anointed son, he says, I'm going to make everything, I'm going to make it yours. And then verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. There's a lot going on there. But actually that rule, that, that word, you shall break them, that word to rule is actually better translated as you shall shepherd them. You'll love them. You'll lead them. You'll guide them. You'll die for them. You'll go into the forest and search for them if one wanders off. You'll do everything for them. And you'll shatter their earth and will you shatter their vessels, the things that they think are better than God. And then he says to the kings, he says, kings, watch out. Take warning, judges, rulers, all you influential people. And then in verse 11, he says, worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. He's saying, and Psalm 2 teaches us that the biggest and the most baddest and the most powerful people in the world, they need to pay attention because they need a God that's bigger than them. Because their world is way too small. It's itty-bitty. It's bitty-bitty in Haitian. But our God is way bigger. So this summer, my hope for us is this. Because in life, you're going to need to pray. Let me tell you. Because you're going to face situations where nothing else works. Because you ain't got the answers. You're going to face scenarios where nothing you know, nothing you've been taught, nothing you've learned is actually good enough to take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. And the only thing that you'll have left is your belief and your faith that God is bigger and somehow he can. And then you will remember that the reason why you believe those words is because God sends his anointed son in Jesus to die so that you and I don't have to. So that little boy in Haiti... Though his mama didn't want him, and though he cannot hear and or listen, that somehow I believe that our God, the King, would speak to him and say, you are my son, and I die for you. You don't have to crawl in these slums anymore. Because I'm bigger 
than anything you think is bigger. Trust and believe. And so that's what I did that day. I prayed. Because I couldn't do anything else. Because he wouldn't even look at me when I was touching him. I was wiping the ants from his face. I was literally doing this. And I was wiping them from his bloated lips. And he wouldn't even look at me because he's just not used to it, it seems to me. And so I just prayed. And I said, God, you do something because I can't. I don't know what will happen to that boy. I have no idea. But I have to believe and trust that God is bigger. He is the king. And the anointed king on Calvary's hill is the one that dies for that little boy like he dies for me and you. And that changes things. And the rulers of the world, they'll worship him because God is alive and he's able to move mountains. Grace is better. We just need to realize it. Let us pray. Father, no matter how old we are, I think we realize, God, that we face many things, things that we feel like we can't defeat, things that we feel like are too big for us. And we tower in shame and in fear. We're timid. We whimper. But help us to see that though everyone will rise up against you, though people will plot in vain against you, that if we respond and if we chew and murmur and groan upon your word, upon your grace, then we will see and we will find that our life is like a plant, like a tree deeply rooted in deep waters where the water comes and it brings up out of us fruit that we didn't even know that we could produce. Because you were a God who does the work for us. So help us to cry to you, however. And this summer, help us to teach us. Teach us to pray these psalms because in them are anger. In them are pain. In them are shouts of fury. In them is vengeance. In them is just rage. But also in them is grace and love and kindness and gentleness and this awe-inspiring notion and this belief in the idea that you are so much bigger and greater and you who are the biggest and the baddest and the boldest, you are our daddy and you have our back. So help us to believe that this summer may carry us for the rest of our lives as we pray, as we respond to what you are doing, and we give you thanks for that. So give us this heart, O oh God, in this place, to hear and to see and to experience what you are doing in the world and to respond in kind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us as we sing in response.